Today's scripture reading is from Luke 16, 1 through 13. Please read with me the highlighted verses. He also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Nason. Good morning. My name is Brad, and I'm one of the pastors here at Grace Sacramento, and it's uh, good to be home. I, uh, as some of you know, I spent a, a couple of extra days in Utah last weekend. We had a presbytery meeting there, and then uh, I stayed to help a sister church in Utah that is uh, going through some difficult times. And so thank you for your prayers and uh, just in, invite you uh, to continue to pray with me for a church called New City, New City Salt Lake, uh, as they are still really struggling uh, for survival. Um, there's a book uh, on my shelf. It's called Gang Leader for a Day, written by a guy named Sudhir Venkatesh. Um, in this book, he describes his time embedded in the public housing projects of, Lud of the Woodlawn neighborhood in Chicago when he was working on his master's degree in sociology in the late 1980s. He's a University of Chicago student who chose not to live on campus, but to live in Woodlawn instead. And it's a fascinating book. It's a fascinating exploration of the underground economic systems 
of the street hustlers and the drug dealers and the residents of the public housing there in Chicago in the late 80s. Uh, it was a quest on his part, the author's part, you might say, that started with trying to understand the phenomenon that he saw around him as he walked through Woodlawn and saw 12-year-olds on the street corners who didn't know where their next meal would come from, and yet they were wearing $150 sneakers. Uh, how did they get that kind of money, and why did they spend it on basketball shoes? Another story. In the summer of 1999, my mother bought a boat. My mother, who for the record, never spent more than $40 on a pair of basketball shoes for me, <laughs> spent thousands of dollars on a beautiful used bass tracker fishing boat, 90 horsepower engine, and she and my dad still use the boat today to fish for walleye and tow grandkids on a tube. She spent thousands of dollars on a boat, and to my knowledge, and at the time, to my knowledge, at the time, nobody, I think including my father, knew that she had those thousands of dollars. <laughs> and she bought a boat. How did she get that kind of money? And why did she spend it on a boat? It has everything to do with what she started to do in the late 1980s as well. Luke chapter 16, verses 1 to 13, is one of the hardest parables that Jesus tells. It's one of the hardest parables to understand. And then it's followed by some of the clearest application that Jesus ever makes after telling a story. It's a story often called the story of the dishonest manager. Uh, a dishonest manager who's congratulated by his boss who he has just defrauded. What are we supposed to do with this? What are we supposed to do with verse 8 where it says, The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. What is Jesus encouraging his followers to do? This morning, I want to wrestle through the context of what is called the parable of the dishonest manager. I, I think that if we can understand what's actually going on, then we will be in a position to understand what Jesus is teaching about how we steward our money and how we steward our time, how we steward the relationships that we have in our lives. And so uh, let's begin with the parable and then look at Jesus's application. The parable has two main characters, a rich man and his business manager, the man that he employs to take care of his affairs. And it opens with a confrontation. The owner has received verifiable reports uh, that his business manager has been, quote, wasting his possessions. We don't know exactly what it is that he's doing uh, to mismanage uh, these possessions. The Greek would literally translate that the manager is dispersing his resources. He's dispersing his master's resources. In one way or another, it seems like he's operating as if the money is his own and not the master's to be stewarded. Uh, his business is uh, to manage the master's money, and yet it seems like he is doing with it as 
he pleases. We don't know exactly what he's doing. Maybe he's inflating the prices of the commodities and pocketing the extra cash. Maybe he is charging abusive interest rates to his master's valued customers. What we do know is that it's not good for the rich man's business to have this guy running his affairs. He's losing money one way or another, and it's not good for uh, his relationships. A corrupt business system doesn't take long before the business suffers. Prices get too high, customer service becomes poor, it was time for this manager to go. And he says to him, turn in the account of your management for you can no longer be managed. You can no longer be manager. You're fired. Business management, even then, was a white collar job, right? This guy says, what shall I do? I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm too ashamed to beg. I can't put this on my resume. I'm going to have a big gap in my work experience if I don't show what I've done. I don't have any other job skills, but I'm never going to work in this town again once this gets out, unless I can make some influential friends. And so he says, I've decided to, I know what to do. And we read that he summons his master's debtors one by one. He says to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he says, a hundred measures of oil. And he says, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 50. Then he says to another, how much do you owe? He says, 100 measures of wheat. And he says, take your bill and make it 80. And just for the record, these are large amounts of commodities. These are not small debts. They're big, leveraged business partners uh, with whom he's dealing. One of two things is probably happening here. It may be that this manager is working through his accounts and actually removing his own inflated commission, right? So he's dropping... Uh, the money that he would have uh, skimmed off the top. Or maybe he is uh, dropping his predatory interest rate back down to a fair market rate. We don't know. Uh, essentially, one way or another, it seems like he's foregoing the cash that he'd planned to embezzle off of the top of these accounts. Or it may be that he's just simply bold-faced doctoring the books. As far as the clients are concerned, the business partners, this is the business manager. He has the authority to do with it as he will. Maybe we'll just call it a discount for being a loyal customer, right? It's a loyalty program. One way or another, call it what you want, nobody was complaining. And the manager was getting in good with those with whom he had accounts, knowing that he might need to come asking for a job in the next couple of weeks. Either way you slice it, when he turns in his laptop and his key card and the boss looks at the books, it says in verse 8 that the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Let's be clear. He doesn't say, wow, you've really changed. You went and made things right. Because he hasn't. And he doesn't commend his dishonesty. That's not what Jesus is commending here. It says that he commended his shrewdness. And shrewdness is, dictionary definition, the quality of having or showing good powers of situational judgment, tactical wisdom. He says the 
the boss says, touche, nice move. The manager has just outmaneuvered his boss. He had a good thing going. You know, he had this long con where he was uh, shaving the cream off the top. But when he got caught, he saw the goalposts move. The, the, the objective changed. Uh, the timetable changed. And so he changed his strategy. And that is what Jesus is talking about. His shrewdness. Where your goalposts are and how you understand the time that you have radically changes how you live your life and how you steward your resources. No matter what circumstances you find yourself in, whether you find yourself with a lot or a little, nothing paints a clearer picture of our priorities or of our passions or of the desires of our heart than our finances. Sudar Venketesh, again, uh, University of Chicago master's student, would encourage us to understand that there were a whole network of social causes, structural inequities, and economic forces at play that make up the setting for the difference between the boat that my mother bought and the basketball shoes on the kid in Woodland. He would point out that uh, for all of those same reasons, uh, he would point out uh, that for all of those same reasons, the kids at the Robert Taylor Homes in Chicago had a very different understanding of the value of time and what uh, to do with money than my mother. You see, my mom began playing the long game in the late 80s. It was a time when people wrote checks. And you had to balance your checkbook. And every time mom paid for something with a check, she would round up what she recorded in the ledger. So for instance, if something cost $14.75, she recorded it as 15 bucks. And at the end of the month, when she balanced the checkbook, she felt like she'd made 25 cents, which she transferred into a savings account. And 15 years later, she bought a bass boat for 10 grand. A key factor is that she assumed she'd be around 15 years later. And so she was shrewd about where she wanted to be when she got there, what she wanted to do when she was a grandmother. Ben Kedish writes that the kid on the violent streets of Woodlawn in 1989 sadly didn't expect to live till he was 20. And the shrewd thing to do was to enjoy any luxury and comfort that was available, capitalize on the street credit you could get by wearing a pair of Michael Jordan sneakers. Do what you can afford to do now because time is short and the goalposts are tragically close. Jesus tells this parable to his disciples immediately after he's been teaching about the kingdom of God to tax collectors and Pharisees. And if they've learned anything from his 
previous parables, the parable of the prodigal son that Daniel preached on last week, uh, it's that understanding that God is actually a loving father running out to meet us rather than standing back in judgment changes things for you. Your understanding of God's grace and his provision in the person of Christ moves the goalposts in life. Understanding forgiveness and restoration through Jesus radically changes our understanding of reality and the use of our time and our resources. It doesn't immediately change the fact that we have a certain amount of money or a certain amount of time or a certain amount of relational capital in our life at this moment. But it should radically change what we do with those things, how we are shrewd. And he says, Jesus says that sadly, the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. What he's saying is sadly, for many of us, the way that we use our time and we use our money and the way that we treat relationships looks almost indecipherable from the people around us who have no hope beyond this life. Following Jesus should change the way that we maneuver the way that we play the money game, and he gives three really specific ways. He says, uh, essentially, it should change how we feel about generosity, how we think about stewardship, and how we worship. In verse 9, talking about generosity, he says, I, And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwelling. Jesus uses that term, unrighteous wealth, a couple of times in this passage. It's part of the confusion, I think, because when I hear unrighteous wealth, I either think either that he's teaching that all money is evil or that it doesn't matter how you make money, right? Uh, just how you use it, right? Go out, go ahead, swindle and cheat, and then bring your proceeds to the church, but that doesn't seem to be what Jesus is saying. He seems to be using the term unrighteous wealth as a synonym for worldly wealth, right? Later on, he talks about eternal riches as opposed to this uh, idea of worldly wealth. He's talking about silver and gold, not the kind of spiritual riches that the Bible talks about in other places. And he's acknowledging that along with worldly wealth comes temptation towards unrighteousness, the tendency towards selfishness and self-interest. It's sort of built in. He says that people around us know how to use money to make friends in strategic places. People like this unethical manager use money as a means to a relational end. His goalpost is self-serving. And so his generosity is paving the way for a soft landing after he gets fired from this gig. He's right, he's building himself a golden parachute, right? But what if God had radically changed his heart and the goalpost was to love God and love neighbor? With, some, uh, with the same sort of radical self-giving love that Christ showed on the cross then the purpose of generosity gets radically changed. But the strategy, the, 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 the boss is suggesting the strategy is still valid, right? It's shrewd to spend generously to make friends for the kingdom of God and to make much of God's name. 
And true generosity, I think we all know, is more than just the amount that you are able to give, right? It's more than just how many zeros are on the number. Because many of us have at one time or another in our lives seized, uh, received a sizable gift for one reason or another that didn't seem that generous because it was given to us grudgingly or with all kinds of strings attached, right? Oh, thank you. How generous. The dishonest manager is happy to give generously, right? Both because he can see that it's helping him accomplish his goal and because truthfully, it isn't his money. And neither is ours. Did you know that there are people in this room who actually save money for surprise giving? In addition to regular support to our church and other ministries, they have money that they have set aside to be able to give to a surprise need. A crisis that arises or uh, able to respond quickly to give someone or show someone love because it's fun. Because it's fun. To be able to uh, surprise someone, it's a joyful experience to be able to be generous. Uh, yes, I can help you go to that conference, or maybe I can help you fix that tire, right? Yes, I'll, I'll help you go on this trip. Sometimes it's not even tax deductible. That's loving neighbor in a way that shows that you believe in a God who loves generously. Jesus talks about stewardship. Wouldn't it be awesome to be able to surprise people with generosity? Wouldn't it be awesome to have a generosity slush fund to just give away? But if you're like me and you heard that story, your first thought was probably something like this. Man, if I only had more money, then I'd have more to give. Right now, I only have just enough. And the problem with that is that we have an incredible ability to adjust our definition of just enough every time we get a raise or a windfall of cash, right? Uh, our lifestyle expands to fit our income unless we're shrewd enough to design a lifestyle that allows us to be generous. It's the difference between saying, oh, I wish I had a boat to take my, kids, my grandkids fishing and saying, I'm going to be a grandma in 15 years. And so I'm going to start balancing my checkbook now. Jesus says, one who is faithful with a very little will also be faithful with much. One who is dishonest with a little is also dishonest with much. If then you've, been, you've not been faithful with unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you with true riches? If you've not been faithful with that which is not yours, who will give you that which is your own? Tim Keller talks about uh, stewardship as justice living. That's his term. He talks about intentionally designing our lives in a way that allows us to take care of our responsibilities and our calling to our family and to our own communities and to our vocations, while also preparing to give in a way that actually allows us to share some of the burdens of those around us. How much... Uh, he talks about how much impact I actually feel uh, in my standard of living in how much that I give away. 
right? Uh, it's not truly, gen- I can give hundreds of thousands and if it doesn't impact my uh, bottom line or my standard of living, then I, am I truly being generous? Especially if it's tax deductible. So if someone else is struggling to live and I can't give enough to even have an impact on my lifestyle, I don't get it. Christ, who was in very nature God, gave himself up to be our servant, to carry our burden of sin on the cross. What does being Christ-like look like if it's not giving up access to status and lifestyle as an opportunity to give someone else a chance at life? I think gospel stewardship is really our best hope on another note. Uh, to address some of those systems, some of that injustice, some of that social inequity, uh, some of those things that contribute to the disparity between fishing boats in the suburbs and tennis shoes in the city. Not only because it's a route by which uh, those who have much can design their own lives in a way uh, to give generously to those that have little, but also because it involves intentionally changing systems. It involves intentional long-term strategy and planning to love God and love neighbor, planning to be able to put our money where our mouth is 15 and 20 and 30 years from now. It involves uh, being intentional with our families and with our communities and even with our social systems to be stewards of what God has given us. I think it's a way to start to deconstruct the kind of economic and social systems and forces that reinforce poverty and injustice. Uh, It's what is required, a long obedience in the same direction to get there. The commitment to balance the checkbook now, even if it seems like we're only making just a little difference. Jesus says, one who is faithful in a little will also be faithful in much. If this all seems uh, compelling to you, but you just maybe like me say, yeah, but I'm really bad with budgeting. I don't do good with numbers. I'm dumb with money. Or maybe you're great with budgeting and money, but just need to think more about how to, uh, uh, where your goalposts should be so that you can get to those places where We're trying to plan in that direction as a church. I want to let you know that we're going to be holding uh, different seminars on Saturday mornings in Lent. And one of those on March 4th is going to be led uh, by one of our deaconesses who's also a financial planner. Just introduce people to the idea of worshiping God with your money. So stay tuned for more details. Jesus says uh, that what we do with our money has something to do with worship. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Someone I read this week said, every time you reach into your wallet, you pull out a little bit of your heart. Our finances don't lie. They tell a story about what is important to us, about who and what we serve. Uh, This is the story of a manager who became consumed with serving his own profit and his own desire. He had been trusted as a steward of great wealth, 
And instead, he imagined himself as the owner of all of those things. And so he started living for the stuff that he had and what he thought he could get instead of the one who had given him all of these good gifts. And he deserved what he got, the ax. In truth, every dime that he kept for himself was a dime that he owed his master. This is a description of sin. This is the story of sin. Having been trusted to steward the life and every good gift that God has given us, we've imagined ourselves not as stewards, but as owners. Owners of the things that we have been entrusted with. We've lived for stuff, and we've, we've lived for the stuff that we've had, and, we, and we've lived for what we think we can get. And the scripture says that we have accrued an unmanageable debt with the giver of every good thing. Who will give of themselves generously to free us of this burden? This is what we've gathered to celebrate, friends, right? On the table before us, bread and wine, uh, Jesus says, shows forth his body and his blood. The incredible cost to rectify the debt of sin that we had accrued uh, by taking what God had given us, the good gifts of life and creation and using them as if we were gods ourselves, as if we owned them. And yet God in his incredible generosity, and the scripture would even say uh, the stewardship of his plan before time. Jesus said he and the Father set out before time a plan of redemption for you and for me, the stewardship of their grace uh, that found its payment at the cross. 